Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 5th of May. This is episode 159, probably. I forgot to check. And we have a big show for you guys talk coming up today. We're going to be talking to uh, Topher Field, a uh, friend of the show, been on once or twice. So we're talking to him because he spoke at a lockdown protest uh, the other week and on Anzac Day. And we were discussing on the show last week that there's all these lockdown protests over in the US and eventually it's going to come to Australia. So we wanted to talk to someone who spoke at a protest, who knows the people who are protesting so we can get a sense of like what, what the actual thoughts behind it are and what kind of people are attending these protests. And that was a really interesting conversation. We're also going to be talking to a uh, Generation Liberty member, Julia Sikulic. Uh We're going to be talking to her because... Uh, well, basically... There's a whole lot of young people suffering under the economic lockdowns. There's not a whole lot of attention that's being given from like national broadcasters to what the experience of young people are going through. So we thought, you know what? This is a national broadcaster. This podcast, this is what people pay attention to. So we want to talk to someone who is going through some of the economic lockdowns. Her friends are going through some of the effects of the economic lockdowns. And just to see what the sort of vibes are among young Australians. Fair, accurate representation of what's going on, Pete? That is pretty accurate. I do do wish we got... Uh, government funding like our other national broadcaster but um you know whatever that's life what would you spend your government funding on pete <laughs> just a just a better kitchen i don't know a better <laughs> i'm sitting in my don't kitchen at the that's... moment and it's about minus eight so something better than that would be good all right fair enough well speaking of national broadcasters sorry we i like to start the show with some good news so good news for yep. everyone uh, for this week's show, the ABC has apologized to the IPA. Now, uh, listeners of the show from a few weeks ago might remember that we did a video on the lockdown restrictions hosted by Gideon Rosner. The ABC decided to do a segment on that. ABC Drive Melbourne, I think it was. Correct. And they uh, took out a pretty key line from Gideon's point. So Gideon said, uh, you know, get rid of the lockdowns, do it safely and with appropriate social distancing measures in place, but do it. And they took out with appropriate social distancing measures in place, just so, you know, the ABC didn't exactly trust their listeners to be able to make up their own minds on the subject. So they thought, how do we make getting into a bit of a boogeyman? So they took out a pretty key line, but now they've apologized for doing that. Which I said in in, um, deference to all the great work Saul does for us, actually takes a bit of work to get the bit in the middle of a sentence edited out. So not that that happens very often on the Young IPA podcast, but when it occasionally does, it's heaps of work for Saul. So it they went definitely to didn't effort. happen on Friday. <laughs> it didn't happen. Didn't happen on Friday. And uh, the uh, the show. So I don't know when drive is. It's in the morning. That's the show. Not the one. Uh, if drive's in the afternoon, it's not drive, but I'm not sure. Okay, uh, and then speaking of the ABC, so the reports come out today that uh, there's a fair few ABC presenters that are up in arms about some cuts. So a report by Get Up and Think Tank per capita yesterday said the ABC lost seven hundred and sorry, there's seven hundred eighty-three million in funding to its annual billion-dollar budget since the coalition came into power in 2014 and called for a hundred million-dollar cash injection. Uh, Paul Barry got in, uh, up in arms about it. Ellen Fanning got in arms about it. Adam Spencer, a presenter, tweeted, My bias on the subject is, I'm sure, self-evident, but this is a national effing disgrace, which is really cool because that's the first time I've seen an ABC presenter actually admit bias on something. I think, James, that they're asking for more money at a time like this is genuinely impressive. It's like how yeah. the Australia Institute jump on the telly every weekend and say, 
renewables are the cheapest form of electricity. Like the ability to say something so ridiculous in public is truly impressive. And, you know, 800,000 people out of work, lockdowns are costing Australians $4 billion a week. Should we ask for more money at the moment? Yeah, yeah, let's just do it. And even in their own field, like AAP is closing down. There's all these closures about media going around the place. But the ABC, you know, they're losing a bit of money. So I don't know if we need a minute silence or maybe like a minute Q&A clap or something like that. Just just on loop for a minute. Just on loop Um, for a minute. See if you can do that Uh, for us all. Thanks, mate. (laughs) No, it's all that is a joke. We don't actually want you to do that. That would bring the show to an absolute halt. Let's make the rest of the show a Q&A clap just to make sure that, uh, what is it, Paul Barry really feels appreciated. Uh, So, yeah. Bit of good news to start the week and uh, apologies to the ABC. Now, we should get into the big story, which is the ongoing stuff about the COVID-19 tracing app. So, talk us to it, Pete. What's been happening this week? Well, as of Monday afternoon, more than 4.5 million Australians of the 16 million Aussie adults with smartphones had registered. So, that's over a quarter, James. The, the government's aiming for 10 million by Friday. Uh, now, it's not actually operational yet. The system will be operational next week ahead of the decision on possibly easing uh, restrictions. So there's a few different ways you can take this. The thing the thing that probably annoyed me the most during the week, not that I, we talk about things that annoy us on this show that much, but a thing that did annoy me during the week was the bribing component that's emerged as a part of this app. We saw the government text uh, Australians with a bribe, effectively saying, help us to keep you safe and ease restrictions by downloading the COVID Safe app now. Health Minister Greg Hunt was more blunt with his messaging. He said, want to go to the footy? download the app on Twitter. So it's very much like it's voluntary, but if you want, you know, if you want your little treat, Australians, we're going to make you download this app. And I think Greg Hunt should watch himself because, you know, if I download this app, I want to be going to the footy like now. <laughs> yeah. Right, I'm ready. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> you're we're on here. And yeah, then uh, like, well, actually, it's not until next year. So in the legislature, we were talking to Morgan Begg about this last night, friend of the show, legal, uh, legal rights fellow here at the IPA. So the government stops businesses from forcing you to download the app, which we're going to be talking about in restaurants thing. You can't deny someone's service because they don't have the app. But the government then also goes, if you want to go to the footy, download the app. So businesses out there, you can't force people to do this, but the government can just be like, you want, you want your treat? You want your treat? Mm. Dance for your treat. Let me <laughs> roll over and let me put, uh, pat your belly. I didn't know. Is that how things work to the Bowles household? That is, that's uh, that's interesting parenting. No, yeah, it's you're right. It's just it's taken them. It's so quickly for them to kind of get to this uh, this parenting mode, and they love it. It's like you know, do it, do what we want, and we'll give you what you want. Yeah, exactly. And the, like the other side of that being, as you say, four million Australians have already downloaded it out of sixteen million adults with a smartphone, and absolutely not enough. Like we what do still. You mean? Well, isn't like we still need to do bad cop. You can have all the good things back when you download the app. How does twenty five percent in a week not make you go like a little bit softer with the cell? Yeah, well, they want ten million by Friday, but as we spoke of the other day in the Oz, there was a poll saying only fifty four percent of Australians were going to do it. Uh, and you know, of that fifty four percent, you'd expect not all of them would actually go through with it. So I'm no good at maths, James, but ten million is more than that. So they're not going to get their aim, as far as I can tell. So, I don't know. Expect more stuff. Expect more. This is only, 
This is going to not be good for people who are only listening to this, but the sunlight's hitting something in Pete's kitchen, which then reflects onto him, and it makes him look like he's in a Michael Bay movie at all times. So, I don't know. I'm feeling a bit eye of the tiger right now. I think there's a few explosions about to happen. I'm going to meet a talking robot in 15 seconds. Things are looking good. I thought you were going to say I was like an angel or, or, or even a godlike figure, something like that. But, um, hey, I did say Michael Bay movie. <laughs> okay. Uh, obviously, didn't get that movie reference. But um, so another aspect of this I wanted to talk about, James, was Chris Berg and Kelsey Nabin had a great piece in the conversation talking through some of the privacy issues with this. So there was, it, it pointed out like three or four examples of how uh, there were better privacy uh, apps that we could have used and better modes of looking after information. And it said, made a really good point, we shouldn't have to choose between privacy and health. Um, so it spoke about how the privacy can be safeguarded better. And it said a really important point which resonated with me and which will resonate with a lot of Australians who are sceptical about this is that we need mathematical guarantees, not legal guarantees. And what they mean by mathematical guarantees is basically better encryption and things like that and better ways of making the data harder to access. Now, the really key bit was when they said government and the pri- and people have a different view of what privacy means. People think privacy means you're not going to share my data. The government means we won't share your data in ways that we haven't legislated ourselves to be legally able to share your data and ways in the future that we might legislate ourselves to legally share your data. So they're, they're very different things and that's why people don't have trust with them because you know in the future they might decide they need it for something else and you know in some obscure piece of legislation, the local council in... Kalgoorlie is suddenly able to get your info. So that's why it's a really good piece. Check it out. It's in the conversation. Normally, and well, conversation. I'd say like uh, Victorian listeners of the show had a pretty clear indication of why you can't really exactly trust every single person that works at a government department with access to your data this week. I mean, yeah. look, I don't really want to get into the Dean Layley story all too much because obviously there's a whole lot more to come. But the mere uh, give us your takes. Guy, give us your takes. Yeah, here's exactly what happened that night. No, uh, but the thing is, the bloke can't spend 12 hours in a. Uh, in a police station without photos of him being all over social media, which he probably doesn't want out there. And even his impounding document made the rounds on social media. Uh, the senior constable now being stood down in, uh, over an investigation on that. So just like everyone know, when the government says you can trust us on your data, you have to think about literally every single person that works at the da- uh, department that can trust get access to your data and also hackers that would be able to find this stuff. Like, the Victorian government can't even keep this guy's privacy for 12 hours before things went out of hand. Yeah, it's just like someone, someone who works in the government hey, just wants to go, hey, fellas, check this out. How funny is this? And it's out there. So yeah, uh, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Uh, now, the other report that came out about the app this week was restaurants look like they're coming back. And one of the requirements from the uh, restaurants union, hang on, I've written down their name somewhere here. Um yeah, the Restaurant and Catering Australia wants diners to sign in to a restaurant and provide their name and number so they can be contacted if another patron later finds out that they've contracted the coronavirus. So basically, this is in response to the fact that government says you can't deny someone's service based off not having the app. So the restaurants get around this by saying you need your name and number to sign in. Now, I think that's okay because that's just taken a booking. Like I've given my <laughs> name and number to plenty of restaurants in my time. Yeah, look, it's at least you're giving it to the restaurant and not to, uh, you know, it's it's unlikely that a Chinese hacker is going to find that you've been at this restaurant if they, you know, they'd have to actually read the bit of scribbled paper that, you know, the really busy waiter is going to write down your thingo on. Uh, it's probably another thing, another one of these like bribing things. It's like download the app or we're going to sort of shame you a bit when you go to a restaurant by making you take the thing. Well, I'm much so, more... 
comfortable uh, from it coming from a private company rather than the government. Because like, my basic thing is a private company can do business with whoever the hell it wants. And if it says, you know, you can't shop here if you don't have the app downloaded, I will take my business elsewhere. But yeah, the government one was just weird if you want to go to the footy, download the app. But I'm, I'm, like, I'm perversely more comfortable with like the, my local cafe saying, sorry, mate, not until you download the app, you can't have a coffee here. But I think this is the government's making them do that. Uh, I thought it was restaurants and catering Australia pushing it as a way to get around the thing. Yeah, as a way as a way to be able to reopen. They're saying we'll do this. Yeah, is that a government body though, or is that restaurants and catering Australia? Well, they're they're saying if you let us reopen, we'll collect this data for you. So that's the government in, a, in indirectly forcing them to collect the data so that they well, can that, reopen. I I and then I they give know. the information to the government if you someone has coronavirus. Is that oh right? I didn't know that part. I thought it was just like, look, restaurants are catering Australia. We're going to have restaurants say we want your uh, name and number. No, they don't care. Like, why, why would they? It's for the government. If if someone has coronavirus, if there's an outbreak at that restaurant. All right. Well, I shoot. My point being, when the government says uh, we need your data, I don't exactly want to hand it over. But when a company says it, I'm a bit more okay with that because I can take my business elsewhere. Yep. <laughs> I agree, but that's not what's happening. (laughs) All right. Uh, Okay, so do we want to move on to schools? Do you have anything more you want to say about the app? No, that's it, mate. That's all I've got for the app. All right, so schools... uh, Yeah, so schools, I mean, we're in the middle of the term. There's a few states that are starting to move back to in-classroom learning. Queensland, I think this was the latest one to say year 11s and 12s in early education is going back as early as next week. Basically seems to be the the major holdouts on national unity on schools is Victoria and the ACT, which led to the Danoff, which uh, <laughs> over the weekend between Dan Tian and uh, who's the federal education minister and Daniel Andrews here in Victoria. Dan Andrews was on. Uh, before I get into the Danoff, I just want to remind everyone that according to the Australian Health Protection Principle Committee, the big boffins, the people keeping us safe, there is no one on that committee that believes there is a risk to children in sending them to school. The Victorian Chief Health Officer has said publicly he thinks schools are safe for children. Now, let's get into the Danoff. Because Dan Tian, Federal Education Minister, went on Insiders and absolutely blasted Daniel Andrews for being a holdout on schools. He accused Daniel Andrews of a, quote, failure of leadership over his refusal to uh, reopen schools and said the Premier was, quote, jeopardizing the national consensus. Whack. So now it's come out that Scott Morrison got on the phone with him shortly after that to say, Dan, can you please withdraw, which Dan then did. And so Dan Tian has lost the Dan off because he blinked. Yeah, because his boss, I was going to go ask why Dan, um, you know, changed the the scene, what, the federal Dan changed his mind. Uh, but then you just told me that Scott Morrison made him. I think what, what annoys me about this, um, this Dan off that you've been talking about, James, is that so... You know, we've been told you've got to listen to the experts. You've got to listen to the experts, blah, 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 blah. If you don't listen to the experts, you you hate old people and you don't care if they die. And then all of a sudden, Victoria wants to go a different way from the federal government because they've been listening to the Victorian experts instead of the federal experts. And it's like, hey, experts have different views. There's different experts. There's different circumstances. There's different context. It's completely fine for Victoria to be different from these experts. It's like, where was this nuance a few weeks ago when, you know, Gideon Rosner was put in jail. Well, he should have been put in jail, but um, for, for his... Put in Twitter jail for his video about uh, reducing the lockdown. That's the thing that annoys me about this. That's what I would uh, say to people that want schools back open is just say, hey, I listen to the experts. Like, it shouldn't be one side that gets to use that line because it's a pretty good line. But if you just say, hey, I listen to the experts, schools should be yeah. open. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly right. It's good to see them realizing that there's there's experts and there's experts. But the but the thing, imagine that like having a go after you've just made this big spray, you know, you're like, I've I've done it. I've really got Dan Andrews here. Yeah. And then Scott Morrison's name appears on your phone, and you're like, Yes, this would be a victory say, call. Well, <laughs> well done. <laughs> and he's like, and you just like thirty seconds later. Uh-oh. Oh my god. Yeah, so but that's the thing. Dancing. So does Dan like he says I withdraw my comments, but does he disagree with them now? Yeah. Or no, is I it just so. I said the loud part I said the quiet part loud. I shouldn't yeah. have said what I actually think about this. <laughs> he really hates he obviously hates Dan Andrews, which you know, they're on different sides of politics, but yeah. I don't think he I think he meant what he said, obviously. And he's probably yeah. there's probably just a bit of and that he was Dan right. as well. Yeah, he's right. He's right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a bit of that Dan, you know. Dan's yeah, always Dan's are always crazy. Exactly. Look at Dan, Dan uh, Wild, come on. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, I knew who you were saying. All right. Uh, then the other part of the education thing we need to talk about. So there was uh, a teacher that contracted coronavirus. They were a teacher at Meadow Glen here in Victoria, and that became a national like see? See? I told you, school shop <laughs> can't be open. Like Doug Cameron got about that, just like, oh, look what happens. You know, you yeah. You want schools to open, suddenly your teacher gets coronavirus. So, but then, you know, everyone missed the part. Well, not everyone, but certainly the C people missed the part where the teacher didn't contract it out of school, had no access to the students while they had it, and no yeah. student has been affected by that teacher. So, what what are we doing here? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. It's just like this, oh, awesome. I can make my political point because there's a teacher sick. Uh also, I would note there's been a little local controversy in Victoria around this. Jenny McCarkos came out and named the school and made a big point of that, as James has just been referring to. But there has been an outbreak in a meatworks here in Victoria, and Jenny McCarkos is, a, is the education minister in the Victorian government. Uh, there's been a meatworks thing in Victoria where she won't name the name of the meatworks, even though she named the name of the primary school. So, you know, ever since I praised Jenny McCarkos, for going crazy in Bali. She's just disappointed me time and time again. Now, again, we, as a podcast, we play the ball and not the man. So yeah. Jenny McCarkos, pro, we are pro-partying in Bali, Jenny McCarkos, but we are anti-not naming the meat factory, McCarkos. Yeah, well, just the inconsistency. You don't have to name the yeah, meat The processing. duality of man, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> the duality of Jenny. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, now, do we? We're about eighteen minutes in. Do we want to do an interview before Heroes and Villains, or go straight into Heroes and Villains now? Oh, put me on the you, spot. Pete. All right, let's. Uh, As podcast let's, captain, let's how do, do you feel? <laughs> this is the hierarchical utopia. Let's do the Heroes and Villains at the end. All right, sweet. So uh, sorry. Now we'll go to our interview with uh, Topher Field. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show, Topher Field, political commentator. Now, uh, the background for this is we've been talking on the show the last few weeks that in the US there's been a whole lot of protests against the lockdown, and we sort of said that Australia is probably going to start going down the same way with mass prote- protests against the lockdowns. Uh, now, Topher, you are someone that has organized a uh, protest already, so we want to get so- kind of an idea of like what the ideas are behind it and what the feedback you're getting is. So do you want to tell us about the last protest that you put together sure well you, you give me too much credit it was actually organized by uh, by someone else who lives out in the town of trafalgar which is where it was held and she invited me to come and speak uh, and i've gotten to know her and so i, I can address the issue of why and, and those sorts of things but uh, i don't deserve credit for organizing it i wish i i wish i could say that i did but um the, the reasoning is very very simple it's becoming very very clear as time goes on as we learn more about this virus and as we see more of the impacts of the shutdown 
that we are cutting off our nose to spite our face. We, the, the damage that the lockdowns are doing is far in excess of, of the harm that is being reduced as a result of the lockdowns. We're actually making the situation worse for ourselves. The political class are completely detached from that. They're not really affected by the lockdowns in the same way as most of us are because they have a guaranteed income, they have a secure job. They're free to go about their business because they just tell everyone that it's essential. They can get out of the house and do whatever they want to do. We look at uh, we look at what Prime Minister Scott Morrison classified as an essential trip to the shops, which was which involved buying a jigsaw puzzle, right? And that's just for his own children's entertainment and so forth. But then we have other people who, for their own entertainment or for their own mental health, are sitting on a park bench and they're getting fined. So it's okay for them to define the sorts of recreational activities that are allowable because that's what they want to do. But other people's idea of what's actually a good way to unwind and de-stress and, and perhaps cope with the situation isn't allowable because they're not a politician. They're not a part of that protective class. So we're really seeing a situation here where there's a very, very big and growing detachment between the people that are making these decisions and the people that are being forced to live under them. There is a rapidly rising sense of resentment and it is hurting a lot of people. People are going bankrupt. People are going broke. People are burning through the savings that they put aside for their retirement or they put aside for their child's education or these other things is now getting burned through for no good reason. We have just seen this morning, uh, it's the first of the reporting coming out, and I, I unfortunately expect there's going to be a lot more of this, talking about a jump in youth suicides here in Victoria, um, which, which is a, a horrible thing at any time, and that is a scourge that, that we do live with on an ongoing basis, but now an increasing number are being linked to uh, the mental health and the impact of, of these lockdowns. We're going to see a jump in, in suicides across the community. We know that that happens when there is an increase in unemployment, when there is an increase in bankruptcies and companies going to receivership. We know that those two are linked. When there is a big drop in the stock market, we know that it happens again. When there's a big increase in unemployment, we know that there's an increase in crime. There's an increase in, in muggings. There's an increase in carjackings. There's an increase in, in every type of crime that you could possibly name. And we have deliberately gone into all of those things and made all of those things worse in an effort to try and make the coronavirus less bad. And we don't believe that those ratios stack up. We don't believe that what we're gaining from the coronavirus being less bad outweighs what we're suffering as a result of our own actions. Which parts of the lockdown in particular uh, would you do away with, Tofa? Well, I'm of the view that Victorians are adults and that we can actually make decisions. And if we had simply been given the advice that, hey, everyone, there is a virus out there. It appears to be very, very serious. We don't really know a lot about it yet, but we think the caution is the, the right way to approach this. Please implement social distancing. Please start sanitizing your hands when you enter, enter shops. Please, restaurants, reduce the number of patrons that you will have seated on your floor or switch across to a takeaway only. I think an awful lot of companies would have done a lot of those things voluntarily on the basis that that's actually the responsible thing to do and that companies get punished by the market if they act irresponsibly. If, let's say, Woolworths had implemented some social distancing measures, some hand sanitising measures and these sorts of things, and just purely speculatively, for example, Coles had not, a significant number of shoppers would have chosen to go to Safeway because they would have felt more protected. They would have felt like, well, these guys are taking the pandemic seriously and coals are not. There would have been a financial incentive there that would have punished those that didn't take it seriously and rewarded those that did. And so I think a, a voluntary basis, we would have, on a voluntary basis, we would have actually seen a significant amount of change already. But one of the other things that very much concerns me, and we see this throughout history, is that when the government makes emergency rules because of a crisis, and they're calling this a crisis, those rules, you know, as has been said by others, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. 
You know, there is nothing so permanent as, as a rule or power that the government gives themselves to deal with a crisis. If we just need this power for this crisis, but then somehow that power never really gets handed back. And we've seen that with everything from the war on drugs to the Patriot Act. We are going to see that again now, particularly here in Victoria with the emergency powers that Daniel Andrews has given himself. Yes, that period will expire. That six-month period will expire. I don't think he's going to keep that going perpetually. However, we've now created a situation where politicians know that over something like this, they can simply make a declaration, take control of parliament in a way that it was never designed to be done in peacetime and completely push aside all of our elected representatives, completely push aside the entire democratic process that is the basis of the freedoms that we enjoy. And they've been able to do it and get away with it. And in fact, arguably, depending on who you believe, he's being rewarded in the polls for it. And he knows, and every subsequent Premier will know that it's just that easy. They can just take whatever power they want, spend whatever money they want, pursue whatever legislative agenda they want without even having to deal with our elected representatives in the parliament that, that the Constitution of Victoria sets up. So yeah, I think we've... I was going to say, it'd be very interesting to see like what Daniel Andrews' poll numbers do when the long-term effects of coronavirus come in, because I think everyone just sort of rallies around the leader in charge when something like this happens yes. and then it wears down. I think you hit on a really important point there where the people that are protesting in the US and in Australia aren't necessarily people that say, I want to go to a nightclub or I want to get a tattoo right now, but it's people that are saying, I want to go to my workplace because you know there are problems with the outrolling of JobKeeper and our problems with the outrolling of some of the stimulus measures in the US and people aren't getting the money that they need in order to survive. Now, if I was in that situation, I'd be protesting, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of, there is some sympathy, but I would say there's also a whole lot of, not a lot of sympathy towards these people. Yeah, the, the as I say, the, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has time to put its pants on. And that's definitely been the case with this particular virus. The fear has gotten all the way around the world. And the actual data that's showing us increasingly clearly that, yes, this is a serious virus. It equates to a fairly serious flu season, but not much worse. Um, that information is proving very difficult. And, and fooling somebody is much easier than convincing them they're being, they're being fooled. All of those truisms, those trite little sayings, are actually proven true in this in this specific case. People were fooled by the media. They were fooled by politicians. And I think there's a, there's a strong political incentive for politicians to do something. They, there's almost no downside for a politician when something like this comes up. There's pretty much no downside to them for just going ahead and doing something. Because then if they do something and it proves to not be very bad, whatever they were responding to, then they can take credit and say, well, it's because we did something. If they do something and it turns out to be really bad, they say, well, imagine how bad it would have been if we hadn't done something. The only real risk to them is if they don't do anything. So there's this real perverse incentive. The experts start jumping up and down and saying, hey, this might be serious. And it might have been. The early data was very inconclusive and it was possible that it might have been. And the, the perverse incentive for politicians around the world is to jump on that and make the most of it. The media, of course, have a similar incentive. They want eyeballs, they want drama. Uh, and so they jump on that as well. And so all of these people, it's not a conspiracy, they're just responding to the incentives that are in front of them. And so before you knew it, the whole world was, was in fear of this virus. And the real information comes from scientists who, the good scientists are much more measured. They wait for the data and they follow where the data leads them. They don't come into something with an agenda and they speak in very controlled and very measured terms. And so that of course doesn't capture the media and it doesn't get the attention of the politicians. Uh, and it takes a long time for that to slowly catch up. But I've been saying for a while now, and particularly as people talk about Sweden where they're not doing lockdowns and they, they appear to have a higher death rate, although that's actually very questionable. There are other parts of, of Europe that have even higher again. But people are saying, oh, look at Sweden, they've got so many people dying. And I have to remind them, it's not about how bad the virus is at the start, it's about how, how bad the virus is at the end. How many people have died once a given community is actually through the 
virus. And what we're doing with our lockdowns is we're extending the amount of time it's going to take us to get through the virus because we're not developing herd immunity. Sweden are almost through. They're only a couple of weeks away from having herd immunity and being out the other side of this and being able to relegate it to history. Our leaders are still talking about us being in some form of lockdown for 12 months, 18 months. We are nowhere near through this because of the way that we've approached it. The same is true politically the, um, and, and, and in terms of culturally. It's not about how people react at the start. It's about where people are at the end of this. And I think that's going to be a very different place. So going back to Daniel Andrews' poll numbers, I suspect he's getting a bounce right now. I suspect that's a legitimate bounce. We see that when a declaration of war is made. We see that when a natural disaster happens. We see that when a terrorist attack happens. That's people's instinct is they rally around the leadership that is there. And it takes time for that to then be overtaken by the reality of the incompetence of the response and for people to begin to actually hold those people accountable rather than just instinctively rally around them. So what's relevant really is not the poll bounce that he's experiencing right now. It's actually fast forward two and a half years when the next election comes along, how are his actions over the next 12 to 18 months going to be viewed? And I think that's not going to be favorably at all if he continues in the way that he started. What were the actual scenes of the protests? Were people social distancing? Like, I just want to think, because these would be the people potentially most skeptical about the need to social distance. Why are they still social yeah. distancing? Were they still being responsible? Definitely, definitely. The the demographic there aged were a little older, and so they are actually in the higher risk uh, category for this disease. And there was no there was no dismissal of the need to be careful. And this is one of the things that I think the government and many people supporting the government's approach just don't understand. Just because we're saying that the government shouldn't do X doesn't mean that we're saying we shouldn't do X. We're just saying it's not the government's job. It's not the government's job to determine which businesses get to stay open and which ones close and under what circumstances. We can actually be trusted to make that decision for ourselves. So the scenes, very, very peaceful. No one started trouble. Uh, the, there were a number of placards being held uh, so that people driving down the highway could see those signs. We were streaming, obviously, everything. Uh, and so we didn't want anyone within our group to start trouble and no one did. We had a couple of police liaison people who were allocated to the, to the job of discussing with the police what we were doing and why we were there. Uh, and they did a wonderful job and the police were, were perfectly professional. They came. Uh, at one stage, I believe, the maximum was six cars. Uh, they came. They, they spoke with our liaison people. And while that was going on, they left us pretty well alone. And then once the discussions with our liaison people wound up for reasons that I'm, I'm not privy to, they chose to withdraw. And they presumably got on with other duties and, and, and did the other things that they as police officers needed to do that day. So it was, it was really quite undramatic. And you can watch the video and, and you'll see as I come walking up, I arrived a little bit after some of the others and after the police. The police were already on site. As I walk up, the police were standing off to one side. A few of them were talking to a few of, of the organisers, police liaison people, and the protesters were all standing over here. Uh, and really, it was quite undramatic. We, we got to m make our point. We held a, a short ceremony in honour of Antac Day. And, uh, and then uh, myself, I spoke as I had been asked to do and talked about why we chose Anzac Day and, and why we felt that that was an appropriate day uh, to, to hold that protest. Uh, and then uh, a few others spoke who have relatives who have been in the military and various other things uh, spoke as well. So, Tofa, uh, are there any plans for any further protests uh, coming up regarding this, as far as you know? Uh, I'm aware that there is something being organised for the 12th. Uh, I don't actually have details on it. I'm aware that there was something organised for the Friday just gone, I believe, but I never really got details on it. But the, the most I ever heard of it was actually from Channel 7, uh, and they, they mentioned that there was something planned. Uh, I believe it ended up being very small. I wasn't there in person myself. Uh, I believe it ended up being very small. And from what little I saw, unfortunately, it, it looks like they weren't able to maintain that same good spirit that, what, that we had on our Anzac Day protest, and it did appear that it had become a bit of a shouting match 
uh, with protesters abusing police officers and doing things that I, I frankly don't think are appropriate um, under the circumstances, certainly. We're not at the point where any of that sort of stuff is is justified, but that's the way that they chose to run their protest. I'm aware that there is another protest being organised for the 12th. I don't have a lot of details about it. I haven't decided whether I will be there or not. Uh, and it will depend largely on the expectation in terms of who else is going to be there. If it's going to be people like what were at the Anzac Day rally, where they are there to make a point and to do it peacefully, then I will happily participate. If it's going to be more the other kind of people who are who join protests just to try and cause trouble and and so forth, well, I've, I've no interest in in that way of making a political point. Uh, your protest, uh, sorry, the protest you were at also drew the ire of Dr. Annalise Van Diemen, who mm-hmm. are the now infamous. Uh, so you were battling against her before it was cool. Uh, what do you reckon <laughs> having someone that high up in the uh, health department says about the sort of thing you're talking about, which is there is uh, a ruling elite which aren't really feeling the effects and then there's another people that are feeling the effects? Yeah, I, look, I'm not going to go too deep into her comments. It, it is interesting, though. There, there is a truth to the idea that at first uh, they, and this is the infamous they, uh, in this case talking about the ruling class and people who are in a position of, of power, at first they ignore you, then they attack you, and then they, they have to, to bargain with you. And uh, we've very quickly gotten through the ignore stage. We managed to brush that aside very quickly and uh, got straight to the point where they had to attack us. Uh, and that's that kind of tells us that we have made some progress. And as a first rally, we were the first one out of the blocks uh, I think we've we've sort of opened the, um, the 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 books quite well in that regard, and and the fact that they've had to come out and attack us in the way that they have, uh, you know, I mean, Van Diemen doesn't have a lot of credibility for reasons that are entirely her own fault, uh, and if this is the caliber of advice that our premier is getting, then I think it probably explains why such a poor caliber of decision making is is, is coming out of his his brain and his cabinet and his office. Uh, if these are the advices that he has, then he's He's almost certainly, even if he's being given the latest information, he's almost certainly not being given good analysis. And data is useless without good analysis. And if these are the people that are providing him analysis, uh, well, I think that goes some way to explaining why the decisions he's making are actually just so poor. So for, uh, we had you on a few months ago to speak about the Murray-Darling Basin uh, issues with water up there. Is there anything going on with that? What's the latest with that at the moment? Sadly not, and, and this coronavirus thing has really drawn a lot of attention away from that, although I will say that the, the people who have been working on that for, for many, many years, and I'm only, I'm only a sideline, really. I, I, I have the pleasure and the joy of being able to communicate with the public about what's going on, but in reality, the hard work is being done by others. They continue to work tirelessly, and, and they've made what I think is a, an excellent point, which is that what's happened with the coronavirus, the fact that Vietnam has shut down rice exports and other parts of the world are no longer transporting food as freely as they did before, has really highlighted the need for us to actually be able to grow our own food and be able to feed ourselves. And I've, I've gone further than that and I've added, given that the World Health Organization now are warning that more than 130 extra people will be on the brink of starvation by the end of this year. That's in addition to the ones that were already struggling. And we know that that is an issue in our world today. It's, it's an issue that's getting better and better all the time, but it is still an issue in our world. There's gonna be an extra 130 million people starving. We owe it to mankind to grow as much food as we possibly can pull out all the stops, do everything we can to grow as much food as we can, get that international price of food as low as possible, get international trade happening again so that the the rice and the wheat that we maybe grow here can make it to those people in time. There is a way to do that, and that is by releasing a water allocation from the water that is currently held by the federal government, which adds up to more than one Sydney Harbour's worth of fresh, beautiful irrigation worth sitting in our dams in the lower Murray-Darling Basin, which is our primary breadbasket, it's our primary food bowl. There is enough water there to be able to grow millions of tons of rice, of wheat, of, of all sorts of other staple foods. 
the, the federal government and the National Farmers Federation came out and, and said, well, there's no issue with food security in Australia because we grow enough food for 75 million people. That was true in 2016. That was true then. It ceased to be true from 2017 onwards because of the impact of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and everything that we discussed last time I was on this podcast. So they're actually deliberately using old figures and they're doing that to try and make people feel good about, oh, we're not going to run out of food. There's no need for me to run down to the supermarket and buy unreasonable amounts of stuff. And that's true. There is no need for us to go and do that. But from a global perspective and from a human well-being perspective, it is completely irresponsible. I would almost say it is, it is pathological for the federal government now to be sitting there saying, we need all this water so that we can breed more frogs and we can keep wetlands going, knowing that that food could have been used to stop human beings from starving to death. And that is now the equation. That is now the decision that we have to make with the water that is sitting in our dams right now. As things stand at this moment, there is no change. However, John Barillaro, deputy um, uh, leader of the New South Wales Nationals, uh, is working on trying to get some sense into that. And the new water minister, Keith Pitt, has shown an openness to discuss it. But then again, over the years, we've seen a lot of talking and a lot of discussions and not a lot of good decisions being made. So the jury is out. We wait and we watch and, and we hope that they do the right thing. Topher Field, thank you for your time. Where can people stay in touch with all the work that you're doing? Look, the best way at the moment is through Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Topher Field. You'll find my page there. You'll find If you go to the videos tab, you'll see the videos that I've done, including the video of the protest, but also videos that I've done around water over the last couple of years, stretching back even uh, eight, nine years ago when I first came to this issue. Uh, you'll see all of my work there and, and you'll see all of my posts where I am trying to stay up to date with the coronavirus and uh, and provide a bit of a counterpoint to some of the fear-mongering that we're seeing in the media. All right, brilliant. Thanks so much. Cheers. Okay, thank you too, Topher Field. Uh, make sure you're following him on YouTube and Facebook if you want to stay in touch with what he's doing. All right, uh, let's go over to Heroes and Villains and then we'll get into uh, the next interview. So, Pete, uh, Hero of the Week, Grunt the Freedom, Freedom Snort, Grunt the Pig, Freedom Snort of the Week. Hit us with it. Yep. Will do. So my, my hero is Kian Hussey, who works at the IPA. He's a research fellow at the IPA. And he's, he's my hero for a number of reasons. The main reason is that he released a bit of research uh, last week that said the number of regulations enabled by the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act 1999 has increased by 445% since the year 2000. I think that was featured in the quiz last week. It was. Uh, so that's... That's why he's my hero. That's the main reason. But there's a few more things. The, uh, the Guardian had a crack at reg data, which is the methodology he used to come to that figure. He said that the, the reg data didn't capture the effectiveness of the regulation uh, and that the, that the reg data project was ideologically driven. Now, Kian wrote an excellent rebuttal to these claims, said that the reg data never claimed to say talk about the effectiveness of regulation. It just talk, wanted to talk about how much regulation there was, which is what he did. Uh, and he said that the left-wing newspapers and left-wing think tanks uh, and governments across North America have used the reg data tool. Uh, so it's not ideologically driven. And he put, he pub- they published the emails that they'd sent to The Guardian showing that they'd made these points to them before they published the article. Anyway, I just think it's funny that like The Guardian thinks that numbers are ideologically now ideological now. Like the 445% is definitely a neoliberal trope, not just the number. Um and anyway, so that's that's the first part. The second part is that Kian was retweeted by the great Andrew Neil. So for those who don't know, Andrew Neil is a BBC presenter of Politics Live and this week, legend of British television. For those that great aren't familiar... YouTube deep dive. If you're a political yes. nerd out there, type Andrew Neil into YouTube and just follow the money. What's the what's the flavour? He's sort of really hard-nosed, isn't he? He really grills anyone. Just every interviewer... Uh, sorry, he's an interviewer. Every interview he does is just 
bad cop questions from start to finish, and it is delicious. Uh, exactly. Right. Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn is a great one. There's a few people from Greenpeace that are great ones. It's just, and, and he does conservative side of politics as well. He grills people all over. And like, so, that, so you go. Oh uh, yeah, there was that famous one of like Ben Shapiro storming out of an interview with him, and you know, it's just, it's good stuff. That's right. And he sort of had a whinge about how he was not a real journalist. He's like this massively decorated journalist. Anyway, as James mentioned, Jeremy Corbyn, famously grilled by Andrew Neil. Here's the clip. Are the words Rothschild Zionists run Israel and world government? Is no. that anti-Semitic? It should not be used, and it is. But you can't say it's anti-Semitic. No, no, I just said that it should not be used. That's <laughs> different from it being anti There's lots of things shouldn't be used, but, but that's not the same as anti-Semitic. Is it or isn't it anti-Semitic? Andrew, it is an anti-Semitic trope. Key and Hussey, for being mainly for the research, but also for being retweeted by Andrew Neil. You are my hero for this week. Yeah, I'm insanely jealous of uh, Kian for the Andrew Neil bump because he is one of my dream interviews. All right, my hero of the week is the humble pangolin. Now, it's been a rough couple of months for the pangolin. Uh, been besmirched, it's honour, and it's now being vindicated. So with Mike Pompeo, US Secretary of State, saying that there is, quote, enormous evidence that coronavirus outbreak originated in a laboratory in Wuhan, China. Don't let China hear you say that. But uh, now that there is enormous evidence, the pangolin, I think, has been exonerated by international law, as basically how it is. And uh, you know what? I, what I like from the pangolin community is that there's not been a lot of uh, uppiness about it. They've taken in the stride. They've handled it with grace and aplomb, as you would expect of such a wonderful animal. Now, James, you mentioned the pangolin a few weeks ago. Was that a hero? It wasn't a hero. I did some uh, podcast deep dive. I've definitely mentioned it. And I've mentioned what I will mention again right now, which is every single photo of a pangolin makes it look like it is trying to get into the conversation, but can't exactly find the right window. But uh, the pangolin's back, which might actually be bad news now that I think about it. Because the pangolin's like the most trafficked animal in the country, uh, in the world. And so you would think that being uh, rumored to have started coronavirus would lead to less trafficking so now that it's exonerated, we're back on regular scheduled trafficking. Mm. But uh, coronavirus also started by US soldiers. So maybe people that are trafficking uh, pangolins. I don't know where I'm going with this. Pangolins, the back. I'm Pangolin. still not convinced we're pronouncing it correctly, but uh, you know this is your party, so I'm just going to copy you. All right. We'll <laughs> move on to villains. <laughs> All right, let's get into villains now. The Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run villain of the week. Saw roll the tape. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. There you go. That's what we... I, I thought I banned you from nudity. Banned you from I what? distinctly remember on Friday's show that there was a two-week ban on nudity in this week's show. <laughs> I said at the time we have a recurring segment featuring nudity, which was your I'm t- idea. So I'm, I'm talking sure to the union. Complaining about. Stop saying it was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my villain this week. Now, I don't want to go on about this endlessly. I'm going to go back into the Joe Biden uh, sexual assault, sexual harassment allegations. Uh, I don't want to keep going on this over and over and over again, but one really stuck out over the weekend, which made me do it. Deborah Messing, Will and Grace star. I quite liked Will and Grace. I didn't actually realize. I think it's still on, but I quite like Will and Grace. Anyway, I think they cancelled Messing- it again. Okay, but for just, politi- just for economic reasons, not for... Is that right? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. I really didn't uh, speak down to the NBC Didn't come up in my weekly chats Okay, well, you know, next time Deborah Messing Is a star of Will and Grace Now she obviously is massive in the, in the Me Too movement she, she, There was an episode of Will and Grace Specifically around Me Too She tweeted during the week 
Biden accuser Tara Reid allegedly stole from non-profit organisation uh, and it featured a link to a Medium post by the controversial Crescentstein brothers. Now, she just sort of shared the Crescentstein brothers, Crescentstein brothers story as her tweet. Uh... Tara Reid tweeted back, this is slander and untrue. And a journalist who is helping Tara Reid said that these these claims have been debunked. Anyway, they don't matter. It doesn't matter if she's nicked something from somewhere. It has no, nothing to do with the case. It's clearly, she's doing exactly the thing that she said happens to women when they talk about sexual assault. And she's doing it because she doesn't like the guy in the White House. Yeah, and we exactly. had to listen to her, you know, over and over and over again. As I said last week, as I said every time I mentioned this, Biden deserves due process. These women deserve to be listened to and respected. And anyone who uses this stuff for political points, because they, not only because they like Biden, just because they hate Trump, is a villain. Deborah Missing, you're my villain this week. I didn't know that the Krasenstein brothers uh, or Krasenstein brothers had written that article, which is such a great throwback because they are, I, I have genuinely missed those two idiots. Like, this is very inside the beltway uh, and for people who are very active on Twitter would know who they are, but they're people that just replied to Trump tweets and then they started a podcast together and there was 20 minutes of them just reading out the negative replies they get and then just not responding to them. They just read them out. It was electric radio. It was amazing. <laughs> They've been anyway. banned from Twitter. We should Yeah, I'm just, I'm glad they're back in the mix. Uh uh, uh, other points I'm going to make out here. So, if, if as you say, Will and Grace cancel herself acting to uh, continue to not work out for Deborah Messing. She's always got a job as a senior constable of Victoria Police waiting for her. And uh, as part of her apology, yeah, Deborah should just come out and say that she thinks victims of sexual violence are political footballs. Like, just say th- say it out loud, just so we all know they're political footballs too. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. All right. Uh, my villain of the week, uh, so, is CNN. So... Have a listen to this story. For the first time, Asian giant hornets have been spotted in the United States, specifically in Washington State, scientists say. Beekeepers have reported piles of dead bees with their heads ripped off, an alarming sight in a country with a rapidly declining bee population. And more than two inches long, they're the world's largest hornets with a sting that can kill humans if stung multiple times. According to experts at Washington State University, the giant insects are nicknamed, quote, murder hornets. Now... I don't know, Pete. Just because the hornets originated in Asia, I don't think that makes them the Asian giant hornet. Uh, let's all just be a little less racist about it, please. Uh, do we even know the hornets didn't originate from the US Army base before they made it to Wuhan, I mean Asia? That's totally right. It's totally racist to call them Asia. And it's like, Asia's such a massive continent. Why, yeah. you know, pick, at least pick the country. Like, Asia's like a third of the no, world. It should just be the giant hornet. We don't need to bring... If it can't be the Chinese virus, this can't be the Asian giant hornet. I don't mind. I don't mind murder hoarding. <laughs> murder hoarding. Yeah. So first up, villain CNN for having to bring race into this. But then also, my other villain is murder hornets because murder hornets read the room. All right, we have got enough going on with coronavirus right now. We do not need murder hornets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Murder hornets should just pull their head in. <laughs> yeah. And come back and next cool year. It. Come back next year. All right. Uh, let's go to the interview with Julia. Okay, we now welcome on to the show Julia Sekulich, uh, one of Generation Liberty members, and we're going to be talking to you because Pete and I were reading IPHM and uh, Janet Albrechtson's column in The Australian this weekend. She pointed out that the ABC has been, hasn't really been providing a platform for younger people to talk about their experiences with coronavirus and the economic lockdowns and stuff, and you think the national broadcasters should be doing this. Pete and I, we want this podcast to be uh, that voice for the young people. We thought it's about time someone did. So, uh, Julia, why don't you tell us your story? So, uh, this year I started working at a restaurant in near the Royal Children's Hospital as a uh, 
what's it called? A food and beverage attendant and a practicing barista. And two weeks in, uh, I had all my shifts completely cut off. And following two weeks after that, my contract was terminated. And uh, since then, I've had to find other forms of uh, work. I'm going back to what I previously did, which was um, babysitting and tutoring. And there is actually quite a need uh, like there in terms of assistance for kids who are transitioning to online uh, forms of study. So I guess that's been the benefit of um, this situation. However, I was hoping to be a little bit more financially independent this year when starting this new job, which is not the case anymore. So we just want to clarify, Julia, you had your contract terminated because of the coronavirus, not because of any personal misdemeanors. Is that correct? Of course. Yeah. I, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, it's actually closed now, the restaurant, because of all of this. So that's quite unfortunate. And it's adjoined to a hotel. So it's like two, I guess, businesses at once closing. Uh, have you talked to anyone else who works at that place and just sort of checked in with them? Because I can imagine like for yourself, you have previous experience in tutoring, as you say, but maybe other people are just sort of like, well, what else What else and what can I do for cash right now would be a bit scary. Yeah. So what the great thing is about the place that I worked at is they were quite supportive. They even gave us care packages. And for those uh, who were, uh, you know, living uh, you know, alone or, you know, having to cover rent. They've created like a fund sort of thing and a newsletter as well to keep in contact with who needs to be supported. However, I am thankful that my uh, uh, workplace was like fortunate enough to supply us with such, uh, uh, you know, inc uh, funds. And um, uh, I've been talking to other people who obviously don't work there. And they haven't had the same uh, situation and are now dependent on the government payments. So is this something that's happened to a lot of your mates that uh, there's a few of them out of work or, or is it yes. pretty? Yes, especially I have one friend in particular, which is a quite unfortunate uh, situation. She had three jobs, uh, all within the hospitality industry and she can't work at any of them for two reasons. Of course, the places have closed down, but she now has to be very careful as to where exactly she does work because of um, uh, she has like a family member who's quite vulnerable, so she can't work in such open places. So even something like Coles wouldn't suffice and uh, she needs to support her family, which she can't do, unfortunately. I've got a lot of friends who've also work in hospitality who've been stood down and there's another effect apart from the economic effects of like not having a job, which is obviously important. But the other part is like it's it's also just a reason to get out and do something with your day if you have a job. That was the uh, issue when I lost mine uh, because, you know, that's what I did throughout the week other than uni. And now, well, that's not the case. Uh, now I just have to make do with the uh, studying and uh, babysitting uh, jobs that I have. Well, it looks like we've lost Bolt, Julia. So that's good. It means I can finally take control of this podcast. And not, not a minute too soon, I would have thought. So we'll see if we can get James back on the line in a sec. But if we don't, that's all right. We'll just do it without him. So, Julia, what I'm really curious about is, is there a change amongst your friends in terms of their views about the lockdown? I know at the start, everyone was kind of on board with it, uh, or a lot of people were on board with it because it was felt like it was necessary to fight coronavirus. Do you reckon there's something a little bit changing now? People are like, okay, I'm sick of this. I have literally I'm no idea what happened to this there. Here he goes. He's back. He's back. That's all right. I had 45 seconds of freedom. It was delicious. Um, oh, do I hope you, you got any good hits in because that was the best time you're ever going to have to get them. Okay. I'm going to take that from the start of what I was saying. Oh, it was mid-question. Sorry? I was mid-question. <laughs> 
Oh, wait. Oh, my bad. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. All right. Let's keep going. Uh, okay. Uh, no, so so Julia, has <laughs> has the view changed over to, over the course of the lockdown? I guess amongst young people. Most definitely for. Uh, all of my friends actually uh initially it was like a time to sort of like me time to catch up back on life like with family and that sort of stuff however even just uh towards the end of uh, april uh my friends were like i really hope that they you know open the um you know the restaurants the cafes at least for at least like takeaway or you know just some sort of work at least one day a week and that to me it sounds like quite it, i've never heard of such desperation before because their life is you know lacking structure and even like purpose to wake up in the morning um so you know i do what the best that i can you know try to boost their mood with my <laughs> quirky personality calling checking on them but it's it's not enough government needs to you know ease in its restrictions this is just getting out of hand the other the other thing i wanted to ask julie was um so do you know of any people that are starting to break the rules? Don't have to name names, obviously, but uh, that are starting to break the rules, starting to have pizza parties. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. My, my camera's falling down. It's all falling to pieces. <laughs> has anyone... This is the worst the show's ever been. <laughs> We're not normally like this, Julia. We are. Well, but, they um, haven't personally confessed to me, but, uh, you know, keeping my eye on uh, Snapchat stories, the, you know, the private ones, the public ones, I see, like that some people either are going to parks in quite uh, open spaces. And I believe it was on the news. Oh, what state was it? I, it wasn't, I don't think it was Victoria. And I believe that that person was in that place at that time. So, um, and there were plenty of people scattered across the park, which is really, you know, questionable. And then I know another instance where this friend is constantly having their friends come over to their house. And I'm just like, Oh, luckily you don't have parents like mine or else, you know, it would, it would go south. <laughs> All right, this podcast has quickly become uh, the chief of police, but uh, I want to bring this back to people's uh, feelings about the lockdown because we were talking about this with uh, Topher Field earlier on the show, which is there seems to be this like one view of people that are against the lockdown or people that are hoping for easing of restrictions that they're just selfish and they just want to tattoo and they just want to party all the time and they need to get with the program. But in reality, it is people like yourself and uh, young people who need the need the meaning and the uh, economic benefits that come with having a job. I mean, one thing that Janet pointed out in an article was 60% of young people aged 18 to 24 have lost their job. 60%. Like, that is an outrageous stat. And this is the kind of people we talk about when we talk about ending the lockdown. Yeah, um, as I was saying um, uh, with, in, another, in the other interview, I, I said that there was one way to sort of encapsulate, I think, everyone's feeling, and that's despirited. So... Uh, even though yeah so again we needed these jobs you know to give us structure a schedule and that sort of stuff but it's also put a delay in our future plans as students so not only do we have such high student debts if we you know go to a university uh but this is now further delayed another year depending on how long this goes for um and furthermore our future plans in terms of work and yeah this it's just we're just on the like the verge of losing all hope depending on how long this goes for so what do you think? Do you think you'll get your job back? Is that restaurant going to reopen? So uh, I have the, like, I'm still in contact with my manager and I have her number in case I need anything. Uh, they did say, like, I would be one of the first people to be contacted. However, I'd have to go through the application process again, which is a bit annoying. But again, it would be quicker since I, they know me. I've been trained. There's, I, I hope so. I'm hoping that uh, my bet is on around 
like September at least for things to be at let's say like stage two restrictions um if not by the end of May because knowing an Andrew's government it's it's gonna keep going for as long as it can there it is she's a gently <laughs> member after all <laughs> Uh, last thing I want to discuss is that we had the number come out today that the economic cost of coronavirus in the country is about $4 billion per day. Now, when I talk to people, uh, Pete's a bit older than us, but when I talk to people our age, Julia, uh, one thing I find is that the whole okay. like intergenerational debt kind of thing doesn't exactly fire people up. So is that something you're finding as well? Uh no, I, it's, it's, as I said before, like all my plans are set a year behind, which is really annoying. So um, that means more debt. And uh, again, as I said, like less hope as to what I'll be doing um, in terms of people that I know, unfortunately, they're not looking at the broader aspects of things. And I, I don't know why I wish somebody would like open their eyes to see that this is not just a momentary thing. This is going to be dragging, like it's going to be on our back for a while. I've just got one more, Julia. Can you please explain to Bolt why what TikTok is? Because he doesn't get it because he's too old. So if you I get it. I just don't like it. I don't know how old both of you are, but if you know the I'm 26 uh, and Pete is 52. Okay. Are you familiar with Vine? I know. I love Vine. Vine. I know TikTok. I just so don't. So it's the care same thing. <laughs> That's what I've been saying. Revived, yeah. Um, because I believe that the person who uh, created that app was receiving certain threats and so fine was you know uh finished <laughs> it was over and then of course everyone loved mine so why not bring it back calling it tiktok which is annoying because it conflicts with most of uh, uh the kids who know tiktok as kesha's song <laughs> hey, are you saying are you saying vine got shut down because of threats i thought it got bought out so is there another story to this well, maybe this is a conspiracy theory that only people my age are aware of, but wow, uh, apparently, yeah, he was, you know, getting some sort of threats and I, I don't know, like I <laughs> shouldn't be the spokesperson of this. <laughs> For the record, and Pete can have the side shot of me not getting TikTok. Look, I know what TikTok is. I'm aware of it. I've seen a few. <laughs> now, question for the panel. What do you like about it? Genuinely think about this. I just don't get it. It's just silly dancing. Because you're too old, mate. It happens. Deal with it. Confession time. I actually don't have TikTok myself, but I don't know if James does this sneakily on Instagram, looking at all the videos. So we're basically using TikTok just through Instagram. <laughs> that is basically what I have. It's just all the people I follow on Instagram post up their TikToks. I'm like, but this is not good. Anyway, this is beside <laughs> the point. This is Babel, and uh, I'm going to put an end to this before someone gets hurt. So, Julia, thank you very much for your time. If you're listening out there and you have your own experience with the economic shutdowns, get in touch with Pete and I. I'm on James M. Bolt on Twitter. Pete, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, people get in touch with me, Twitter or Instagram, peter.j.gregory.7 or peterjgregory3 on Twitter. Sweet. Uh, so, yeah, tell us uh, your story, and we might have you on the show. So, thank you so much, Julia. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Julia. That was great. Okay, thank you to Julia. All right, let's uh, let's end the show with a few things that made us laugh this week, including Australia's favourite new segment, Pete's Not Fine. Pete, let's go with it. Australia and the world's Pete's Not Fine. This is where we talk about all the crazy fines that are happening in the country around because of coronavirus. And it's a great name. First one, Queensland opening up. You know, 
Uh, from Saturday, residents could travel up to 50 k's from their home to shop, visit a park, or even go to the drive-in. However, police were still patrolling. I love the way they included drive-in in that story, like anyone does that. Uh, anyway, police have still been trolling popular areas to, and have handed out 32 on-the-spot fines for $1,300 for $1, on Saturday. Uh, so far, 1,600 fines have been given in total for more than $2 million. So they've been busy up in Queensland. A few stories from launching out of the Sunshine State. Uh, firstly, and this is what I really don't like, they have started an official online form for people to report people who are flaunting COVID regulations. This is a disgrace. This is encouraging people to tattle on their neighbours. It's the twitching curtains that Brendan O'Neill has been talking about. Uh, Will it be flooded with memes like we saw in New York? One can only hope. If we call for them to do that, do we get arrested? Uh, maybe. People One way to find out. People of Queensland, we don't call on you. Don't call on you to flood Pete that. Pete is winking maniacally for people listening <laughs> at home. <laughs> I'm actually not. I can't wink. Anyway, an really? excuse. Well, uh, sort of. Just there you go. That's a wink. That's all right. That's a wink. Yeah. Uh, now, that's one. Now, knowledge of the pandemic. Earlier this month, five people on the Sunshine Coast were fined more than $6,000 over a noisy party. So this one's a little bit old. Sorry for being late on the scene with this one. But the reason I like this is because they claimed to have no knowledge of the pandemic or social distancing. What COVID infection? I don't know what you're talking about, mate. Maybe they just came back from the two-month camping trip and they were just having a party to wind down and reconnect. Yeah, yeah exactly right. This is like yeah. uh, tomorrow when the war began, when those kids went to went camping. And Australia got invaded, and then they became guerrilla soldiers overnight. This is an unreal moment for this show, but I have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know what Tomorrow When the War Began? I think I've heard the title, but I've definitely never read it. It's a book by John Marsden for teenagers when I was a teenager, and there's like seven of them. It's really good. I think. I, I mean, just, I read I, it a long time I, ago. I just love the reversal of fortune here. We finally <laughs> found a cultural reference point that Pete knows that I don't. Well... You know, you should check them out. They are quite good. Anyway, that's what happens at the start of the first one and then they do it forever. But um, uh. now, the final one, a woman was sent to jail, spent a night behind bars and was fined two grand after breaching coronavirus self-quarantine because no fresh towels were sent to her room. So I'm a bit six of one, half a dozen on, on the, half a dozen of the other on this one. I'm not, you know, getting sent to jail because she's after a fresh towel seems a bit strict. But also... You know, I always find the fresh towels a bit unnecessary in hotels. It's like every day, really. <laughs> I'm know, with you. Could, so, $2,000 fine because she went out trying to find a new towel because none were delivered to her. Was her name Karen? Oh, <laughs> that's sexist, mate. They, that's, you've, I've read the guy. Uh, it's not sexist. It was clearly a woman in the uh, description. Just wanted to know if her name's Karen. Could yeah, be anything. I don't, I don't, just said, I don't know what her name was, mate. Maybe we can get her on the show. She what was her haircut like? Was it like short, but with like a few pink streaks in the front? I'm not sure. I haven't got a haven't got a haven't got an image, but we can. We'll try and track her down and get her on the show, and you can ask her all of this yourself. Yeah, and then she will ask to speak to Steve. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Steve's our manager, by the way. Um, so look, the Pete's not fine. It's sort of winding down a bit, but I think as people get restricted, uh, lockdowns will start to end. People will be like. All right, I'm just going back to my normal life now and there'll be more material. No, I reckon this is a golden age of peace, not fine, because here's why. You said that there was a whole bunch of fines handed out in Victoria, uh, so in Queensland after they started to ease restrictions. I yeah. think the messaging of what's going to be allowed is going to be a bit mixed, which is a bit of a boon time for police fines because yeah. it's like, oh, you can go to the beach, 
but we'll find you if you get between 1.5 meters or if you do like, you know, paddle boarding or something like that, which you should be fine for anyway because paddle boarding is stupid. So it'll be like instances like that. Yeah. Where you can, you can do golf. X, but you can't do Y. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. You can play golf in public, but you can't, can't eat sausage get- rolls. Yeah. Because <laughs> you get coronavirus. So yeah, stuff like that. And that's when we'll really start to make hay. Yeah, I think that's fine. it. Uh, all right, so I'm going to give it to Karen at the start. Uh, I got another article from you here. So a lot of people started to, uh, well, started or have kept on, or maybe they're doing it a bit more uh, jogging just to get out of the house in the UK. Helen Coffee in the Indet- Independent. Uh, so wrote an article: Don't manspread while jogging. Few choice quotation paragraph here. And again, I say hashtag not all men, but if women's contorting to fit is unconscious, so too is men's ballooning to fill in as much space, physical space as possible. Maybe you all need to do to change that dynamic is to become aware of how you're wired. Maybe all you need to do is acknowledge and fight that urge to expand. Basically, the idea men don't make way for other people when they are jogging on the street. They use their big space to make everyone go around them, whereas she tries to make herself small and go down onto the road to make way for other people. So, Pete, your thoughts. Man spreading while jogging. Well, if Helen wants to talk about uh, privilege, right, she gets to write 900 words in The Independent, which is a prominent newspaper in the UK without a single single piece of actual evidence. Just, I've gone on a run... This annoyed me. It was her lived words. experience, Pete. Are you denying her experience? <laughs> yes, I'm denying her. Well, I'm not denying her experience, but you know, I had a piece in the Spectator this week, and this is not just an opportunity Flex. for yourself for a, for a plug. And I counted how many pieces of so hers was Flex. 900 words, mine was 686. I counted how many pieces of evidence were in mine. 17 pieces of evidence, 686 words. That's a bit no mansplaining, if you ask me. To know, so Helen, when you write articles, what you have to do is so. Um, <laughs> And the other, so, so I did some research for, for Helen and I jumped on Google Scholar and I put in manspreading 915 articles, 915 articles on manspreading in Google Scholar and she didn't reference any of them. My favorite article, GM Corn set to stop manspreading his seed. Don't know what that means. Uh, so Good on that him. was my favorite. Uh, but I could see you doing a bit of manspreading while you jog. Bit of arms and legs going everywhere, you know, Me? taking up the path. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, figure. I'm just uncoordinated. I'm just not a very good runner. <laughs> so it's you're not like... Fault. You're not thinking I can take up as much space in the world as I want. You're just Bianco. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my other part of it is, so first off, like I am going to deny somewhat of the experience because if men simply were running in a straight line, refusing to move for anything that was coming at them or around the same time, then the streets would be impassable as it's just men who've run directly into each other and are now just entangled in each other. Like You couldn't run at all because of just yeah. the seas of athletes that are on the pavement. So yeah. I've got to deny that that's happening. And second off... Men that are running are the good guys in this situation. If you want to talk about people that are trying to make themselves smaller, people that are going out on a run are trying to burn fat and make themselves smaller. So I wouldn't be going and shaming them, getting them to stay home where they snack and they become bigger. I like it. They are doing everything they can. They're putting themselves through physical pain to literally take up less space, Helen. Exactly. So they they are the good guys. All right. So last thing I want to do with this show is bring attention to something that I thought was widely known, but apparently not. So over the week was the nine-year anniversary of Osama bin Laden getting killed. Now, that is widely known. I don't think there's too many people that are like, wait, we got that guy? But here's the part that isn't that well known, which is The Rock Rock knew before everyone else. It's a famous tweet. I can't believe, like, because I was telling you about it. You'd literally never heard about it. And then I was, because I am a very online person. I know things very well that other people are like, 
I've never heard of that before. Like Krasenstein Brothers, for instance. Like, no one knows who they are except me, who knows way too much about them. But anyway, so here's the famous tweet from The Rock. Just got word that will shock the world. Land of the free, home of the brave, damn proud to be an American. That was like a few hours before it came out that Osama Bin Laden got killed. Now, Pete, you give me grief for how much pro-America I am and how much I like pronounce things American and I love American culture, but name me another country which would kill the world's most wanted man and then inform Dwayne The Rock Johnson before CNN. I can't. I can't. Because <laughs> I, I don't want to live in that country. I, I think... I was, we should have made the whole show about this tweet because this is incredible. I just don't get how The Rock knew before everyone else. I did a bit of research actually once you told me that and he said, uh, what did he say? I've got my sources. I've got friends in high places and low places and that's pretty much all he said. Um, no, all he needs to say, Pete. What's that, sorry? What else needs to be said? Yeah, he just knows stuff. He, but yeah, he just, he just knew and... People were saying this was Twitter's greatest moment ever, which is, you know, pretty weak field. But is that right? Would you be calling this Twitter's greatest moment? Uh, I mean, there's the Pitbull Memorial Day tweet. Uh, people don't know that. But then uh, one year, Pitbull, like, treated Memorial Day, which is like Remembrance Day over in the US. And he said, Happy Memorial Day, everyone. It was a picture of an American flag with Pitbull's face just superimposed on it. <laughs> which, uh, that, that's a pretty great Twitter moment. Uh, the guy bringing beans to the cars too. Bit of a deep dive for the people out there. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a lot of great Twitter moments out there, but this is certainly right up there. Never, ever, ever forget that The Rock broke the Bin Laden story. <laughs> yes. Don't forget. Don't, don't ever forget it. All is right, he the is, people's elbow? Uh, I'm not a huge wrestler. We're going to have to get Evan Mulholland okay. back on the show. Okay. Uh, all right. That is it for the show this week. Thank you to Julia and thank you to Topher Field. And uh, we'll see you guys on Friday. Stay up. <laughs>